And now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, where we're turning our attention now for the month of December to the Gospel of Luke and looking at the first two chapters, as Luke does more than any of the other authors to give us the backstory of the events that lead up to the Christmas celebration and help us to understand just how amazing and special the birth of Jesus was and why eventually, for all of us, our calendars would be marked by all of human history before this event and then all of human history after this event. And so we've titled this series, Let Us Adore Him, uh, because we believe as Christians, as Gaylord was referring to, that the person who's come that we celebrate is in fact mighty God. So we don't just mark a historical figure who lived a significant life and taught a few amazing things, but we believe that that person who came and taught and did the many things that he did was in fact God in human form. Therefore, that it is appropriate to adore him, to worship him. That that is the honor that is due him as the one who made us and then came to be among us. We're gonna read the first 25 verses of the Gospel of Luke. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find it on page 803. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were now advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. For he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's wombs. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. 
and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. And this will conclude our reading for today. The opening question as we come to this passage is simply, why do we need Christmas? And we might answer that differently today, and we would answer it differently than they would have 2,000 years ago. When we think of it, most often stuff that comes into our mind is a time to get together with people we haven't seen in a while or a time to celebrate the good things in our lives, to exchange gifts with people and opportunities to just express our love. We need moments like that in our day, and that's why we need it. But that experience today is drastically different than how they would have answered the question 2,000 years ago of why they needed a Christmas. We just, as a church family, finished going through the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah had been a part of a group of people that had gone back to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Some had gone before him to help rebuild the altar and then others to build the temple and he went to fortify the city walls and as the story ended, as we saw last week, it it didn't end triumphantly. It didn't end with the sense that now that the walls are rebuilt and now that the temple's rebuilt, just everything's good again. No, it, it ended somewhat frustratingly for Nehemiah. He was disappointed and unsure if people would honor the work that he labored to do and carry on the worship as it was supposed to happen. So when we get to the end of Nehemiah, we realize the people of God, they still need a Messiah. They don't just need a restored house of worship and they don't simply need a safe city to live in, but they still need the fulfillment of what the prophets had been claiming, that a Messiah would come. In Ezekiel, uh, the way it was phrased was that God said, no, no longer am I gonna send other people to represent me, but I am going to come myself and rescue you. And not only as the book of Nehemiah ends, but as the whole Old Testament ends, it, it ends with this still looking forward and wondering when and where will the deliverer come? And from the close of our Old Testament to the beginning of our story in the New Testament is around a 400-year period of history. And so this is something that they had been longing for and waiting for for a long time, not just trying to get from Thanksgiving to Christmas. There was generations of generations of people waiting and longing for this to take place, for Messiah to come. Specifically, Luke unpacks for us that these are the days in which Herod the Great was the king of Judea. And for many of the people, that meant it was a mixed experience. He was at one and the same time one of the most brutal Roman leaders of that day. You did not want to get in his crosshairs. He didn't respect his own family. Uh, If you were in our Sunday school class this morning, you heard he executed three of his own sons out of fear that they would be competition to him, let alone things that he did to those who he considered 
political enemies of other nationalities. But at the same time, he also invested quite a bit of money for the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. So that in just the last 20 years before this story, quite a bit of public funds has been put into making the temple even more elaborate than it would have been in Nehemiah's day. If you remember in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, once they started the project, most of the people when it was done who remembered what it used to be like, they started weeping and crying because they knew that what they had just put back together was nothing as beautiful or as glorious as it was in Solomon's day. Well now, there was a pretty brutal person in power who knew how to get things done. He built lots of palaces, but also as a way to appease some of the people, he also gave money so that they could have things built up that they wanted built up. And one of those things was the temple. But here again, it was this mixed relationship where they knew he wasn't a godly person. When needed, and to appease at times future rebellion or revolt, he would offer projects that would show goodwill towards the people. But you never felt safe or secure under him. And he was the ruling power. In spite of every good thing he did, they looked at it and said, for us, in our region, this is the most powerful person and we know he's corrupt. We know he doesn't care about God. He's not praying to God to figure out what the right or wrong thing to do is, but he has power over all of us. And that's an unfortunate reality but none of them could deny it. Then we're introduced to this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. He comes from a family of priests and Elizabeth comes from a family of priests through Aaron. And so their background and pedigree is about as solid as you could ask for. And Luke tells us that they lived their lives with amazing consistency, that they were Righteous, They were very sincere people who sought to follow after the Lord. It says in verse six that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. It's about as good of a verse that could be written about any ordinary couple on the planet. They came from a good background. They lived lives of integrity seeking as sincerely as they could to follow after God. It's not saying that they were perfect and they never made a mistake, but comparatively speaking, they were about as good as it gets. And yet, even in their obedience, they had experienced frustration and unfulfilled promises and desires. They were not able to have children. And so when we look at both of these, there is someone who's reached amazing heights of power in spite of the fact that they're wicked and they don't care about God. Then we have this couple who cares deeply about God. They're they're committed to it with their whole lives. He's a priest in the service, but not everything in life works out the way they want it to. It's not just all unfolding according to their plan or prayers. And we say both of these are reasons we need Christmas. Because 
there is no ultimately political solution for everything that ails us. There is no one leader who can solve all the problems by simply using all the resources available to any one government at any moment in time. That isn't the way in which Messiah is going to come. And sometimes in our broken world, people that shouldn't even be in positions of power get into those positions of power. And then they abuse that power against other people. And we experience that frustration and that futility. But then also, even the religious among us, with the most sincere effort and time devoted to God and following after him, experience pain and loss and hurt that this world shouldn't afford. And here's the thing, when, when we can all recognize that the world is broken and it has trouble and heartache, oftentimes it can either be through politics or religion that we look for some sort of an answer or a solution to those problems. And Luke, as he's unfolding this story to us, is reminding us that no, sometimes it helps, but sometimes those systems are just as broken as we as individuals are. And so they have struggles and imperfections just like we do. And so if we put all of our hope in politics to answer our problems, or if we put even all of our hopes in the temple and religious leaders to answer our problems, again, we say, not much is gonna change. Not much is gonna get fixed. And so we need Christmas because we need a Messiah and a Savior who comes from the outside of all of that and enters in. We need a Savior who's uncorrupted by the politics of his day or even by all the attempts at sincere people who are trying their best to follow God, but they don't, they don't know fully what his will is. They're just, in Paul's words, looking through a glass dimly. The rescue, the savior, isn't gonna come from within us. It has to come from outside of us. It has to enter into this story. Otherwise, the story's gonna keep repeating itself where someone new will rise up to power or someone new will be leading in the temple but will experience the brokenness of our world in both of those places. So for the people, as they were longing for Messiah, there was, there was a hunger, there was a thirst, there was a please, God, come. Because Herod's in power and even his good attempts to appease us have so much corruption behind them, so much wickedness. And then even in our sincere attempts to follow after him, we realize we're not God. We can't just make things happen as we wish they would. And this is why they needed Christmas. This is why there was a longing in the people of God for a Messiah to come. The next question that we come to is, why can we trust the first accounts of Christmas? We're introduced uh, here to a story. And part of this story tells us there's corruption in high places. There's even brokenness and frustration in religious places. So why can we now come to something like this and have confidence that Luke is being truthful to us? Or Matthew or Mark or John, wherever we would decide to enter into the story. 
And that's a legitimate question for any of us to ask. And part of the way of getting there is that it can't just be answered in one setting. It, it has to be thought through over a period of time. In the same way that you would interact with any other person and over time say, do I feel like this person's telling me the truth or not? <laughs> do I feel like they're, they're giving it to me straight or do I feel like they're trying to sell me something? And it's partly in interacting with someone over time that you encounter and you say, the more I'm listening to you, the more I feel like you're trying to sell me something. <laughs> or the more I'm interacting with you, you seem to be honest. You're honest about the good parts and the bad parts and you're making a case for something, but I, I think I can find you trustworthy. Luke acknowledges this. He starts off this gospel addressing a specific person named Theophilus, and he says to Theophilus, I'm gonna do my best to tell you this story from the multiple things that I've heard and the investigation that I've put forward as to what really happened. And he himself believes in Jesus so in that sense, he's biased. He's come to his own conclusion that this is really true. But if we're open to listening to him unpack the story of Jesus coming and what happened around that first Christmas, we would expect to find things along the way that give us increasing confidence or not that he's really being truthful. And here at the beginning, we see in his uh, description of the frustration that Elizabeth and Zachariah are going through, they really do sound like an ordinary couple. You could say to yourself, I know someone in my life who I think is as sincere as possible and is trying their best, and that doesn't mean life has gone perfect for them. That doesn't mean everything has gone great. And you know, I've interacted with people who don't care about, a lot about God, and they seem to get okay in life. They, they seem to get ahead at times. And so just even as he unpacks this, we have to say, is this true or not? Uh, I was telling someone, we went for Thanksgiving uh, to Cincinnati, and so we, we drove home yesterday. And I didn't think about it before we went down, but uh, as we were there, I realized, oh, Saturday's the Ohio State-Michigan game. If we plan to drive then, like Columbus will be a ghost town. Like the whole city will be glued to a TV and no one will be on the road. And sure enough, it proved to be true. So we did it and uh, made it home in really good time with not a lot of traffic yesterday. And I could describe the, the trip to you in one way and say, we made it home without a lot of traffic and so we made really good time. But as I was talking to another friend who's a young mom, she's like, but how did it go? Like, do you guys fight a lot in the car or not? If I would have said, no, no, four hour road trip, no one fought. You'd been like, I just, that's hard to believe. Like, it's hard to believe you're being truthful if you're saying no one argued. So I said, no, if you would have hit the record button for the three hour and a half drive that it was, you would have gone from everything like, I don't want to be in this family anymore, why did God put me here, to then, yes, playfully singing along and having fun. And it was a good trip, and a whole lot of stuff happened uh, on the way, none of it traffic related. And you can, even if you don't know me, you would start to believe a little bit more that, that that's true. It's more believable than if I were to say, no, 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 I just have angels as kids. And no one argues. And, and Amy and I never have a disagreement over where to pull over or stop along the way in a trip. Say, 
I'm just not sure if that's true. Or while we were down there, because uh, we were at my sister's house, you know, on Friday morning, we woke up and we thought, oh, the boys would love to probably decorate for Christmas, so we decorated. And it was amazing to look at it and say, it is really not stressful at all to decorate for someone else. <laughs> like, we didn't get into a single, really, argument or fight that happens when we do it for ourselves about where things should go and how it should be. It's like, this is the same amount of work. And we just did it all for someone else. And it was so much more peaceful than when we have to do it for ourselves. If you find any humor in that, it's because you can say, yeah, what, what's up with that? Why is a, a home project, even if you're skilled at home repair, more frustrating than to work for someone else? And that applies in so many different categories. Well, as we encounter Luke and let him tell us the story, he's willing to tell us the good and the bad, the hurt, the pain, the things that seem to resonate with our own hearts, that this is what life is really like. And if, if there's gonna be a savior from the outside who's gonna enter into this story and he's gonna enter in and be the Messiah, I'd expect that when we read this story that there are people along the way who have a hard time believing it. And they actually have almost no category of what to do with it. Instead of reading the stories that unfolds and as the angel makes an announcement, Zachariah's like, of course, I've been waiting. This is perfect timing. No, when we read the story, Zechariah is a priest, which there are many, many priests. His division is chosen to come to the temple. Of that group of people, lots are cast. And so he's picked, it's like rolling a dice. Okay, Zechariah, it's you today. You're gonna come on in. For an hour, you're gonna come into this room where no one else is allowed. And they're waiting outside, and it takes so long that they're like, uh-oh, this can't be good because sometimes when a priest has chosen to go in he's not just going as an individual he represents the whole nation and so if there is judgment from God on the people that judgment might, ha might come on the priest he represents everyone else so if he can go in offer the prayer and come out and report back almost everyone breathes a sigh of relief okay things are good but if he doesn't come out alive, we might be in trouble, everyone. <laughs> we might have a whole lot more repenting than we thought we would. And so as he goes in, there's the sense of anticipation around him. It tells us an angel appears to him and gives him a vision that he is an old man married to an old woman, have this longing and desire for a child that has been unmet for years and they're told it's gonna happen. You're gonna have a child. And again, if we wanna grow in our confidence that Luke is a truthful narrator of what happened, and we read that Zachariah's like, what? How is this gonna happen? We enter into it a little bit more like, I like the Zachariah guy. <laughs> I think I would say the same thing. I have no idea what I would say if a vision came to me in 400 years since the close of the Old Testament when, yes, people have been longing for it, but how much of a sense of expectation do they have that this is really going to happen? It's good news, 
but he is genuinely surprised. So verse 18, Zechariah says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And he says, I've been sent to speak this news to you. And then because of his struggling to believe it, he says the sign to everyone else is you're going to come out alive, but you're not gonna be able to talk to any of them. And until your son is born, you won't be able to talk. That's, that's weird, it's unusual, but wouldn't you expect weird and unusual things if the story's about to change forever in a way that it's never changed before? You, you would. There would be markers along the way that would indicate something's different this time. It's not gonna be the same as it always was. There's this reference back by the angel of the promise of Elijah coming to prepare and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, which if we turn back to the last book in our Bibles of the Old Testament to Malachi, we see is exactly what had been prophesied by Malachi. And so as Luke is being careful to record these things, this is what he's being careful to make connections to for anyone who's a Jewish believer and they say, you know, this is strange. I don't know that God works in this way. Luke is telling the story to say, hey, don't forget about Abraham and Sarah. Don't you remember how it all got started? We don't exist as a nation if God doesn't come to an older couple who longed to have children but couldn't and says to them, you're going to. No, we're not. We're too old. Yes, you are. And a whole nation would come from them. They were hoping to have a child, not a nation, and not a nation that blesses all nations. And Luke is recounting the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and making a connection to Abraham and Sarah for anyone listening in like a Theophilus to say, is this what God is really like? Is this how he would do things? Can I trust what I'm hearing is true. It's not my expectation that you could come strongly to that conclusion that the answer is yes this morning if before this morning the answer for you was no. I'm simply trying to invite you to consider it, that if your answer is no, you have reasons to keep on reading. Submit your own questions to the text and say, what would I need to see to believe it? What would I need to hear to come to growing confidence that this is true and then be willing to read it? Be willing to allow Luke to tell you the story. As Christians, we come to it and we say, yes, we, we have read the rest of the book and we, we see the evidences of a truthful storyteller telling us wonderful and amazing news that even though we weren't there, we, we have every confidence to believe and so we joyfully celebrate at Christmas time. The next question of this passage is how do we prepare for Christmas, which is again very different for us than it was for them. The specific promise to Zachariah and Elizabeth was that they would have a son named John and it would be his job to prepare people for the Savior. If someone really, really great was about to show up, we'd want advance notice and a lot of time to prepare. If we were told three months from now, the head of state or some department of state in our government is going to visit Lakeside Christian Church, 
we'd want all the time we could to get ready. So before Jesus comes, there's someone else sent to get everyone ready. Because this isn't gonna be normal. This isn't gonna be like any other time. We wanna be ready for it. We wanna prepare our own hearts to do it. Because this child who will come will be totally unique. And so John's message is one of preparation. And part of that preparation is to call out the sin of the religious leaders of his day and the political leaders of his day. This John who came in the reign of Herod the Great is later executed by another Herod because he's willing to speak the truth to power. But John gets this is part of how we prepare for Christmas. We don't pretend like nothing's going wrong. We don't pretend like it's all good. We're we're honest about the state of our world and the things that we suffer. John also just as much invited the Pharisees and the Sadducees, anyone who came out to the Judean wilderness, and he told them, you need to get baptized. What? We do? Yeah, you do. Because he's coming. But we're the religious leaders. There is not a person on the planet who does not need to get ready for this. You can't hide behind your religious credentials, your authority in the temple. You all need to come down to a river and get soaked and say, God, make me ready. Let me not miss this. Let me be prepared when the Holy One comes and he brings righteousness and justice and joy and peace in this world. Advent for us as Christians is supposed to be a time of preparation. Not mostly in going through a list of gifts we want to get. But in a humble way saying, we need to be just as ready as anyone else. God, what do you, what do you want to work on in my heart? What are the blind spots in my life? What are the areas I still haven't surrendered to you? That when you do desire to come I don't hide behind any of that, but I'm just ready for you to be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your word that we can come and hear about Zachariah and Elizabeth and the good news that as you spoke to Zachariah's heart, that you have heard his prayer, which was his prayer for himself and his prayer for the nation as a priest. That you are a God in heaven who listens and looks down and is not ignorant of any of the stuff that is going on. You know it all and we believe that you care and so we are so thankful that you are willing to come from the outside in and be a light that this world needs. We pray that you would help us as your people to get ready, knowing that you have already come, but knowing that you have promised to come again, that in the same way we would heed the message 
that came from John the Baptist, that our hearts would turn towards you, that we would be open to all that you would want to say and do in our lives, that we wouldn't trust in anything else but your presence so that we can give you the fullness of our hearts and our lives in adoration and in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.